Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with British Columbia's drug overdose crisis. The number of fatal drug overdoses continue to rise. Seems like every month we're setting a new record for overdose deaths. That's despite the harm reduction measures put in place by the province, including supervised injection sites, decriminalization of drug possession, and safe supply of drugs. What is safe supply? It is government-provided, laboratory-tested opioids prescribed for drug users so they do not use deadly illegal street drugs laced with fentanyl. Got Greg Sword standing by to discuss. Greg is a Port Coquitlam dad. He tragically lost his daughter to a drug overdose, and he's bravely speaking out about it. Looking forward to speaking to him. Now, first, have a listen to this here. The province now, brand new report from the chief coroner's office, recommending an expansion of safe supply provide these drugs to users without a prescription. A prescription is required right now. Have a listen to Jennifer Charlesworth here. This is British Columbia's independent representative for children and youth here, making the case for safe supply, no prescription, and for underage drug users too. Have a listen. We have to be open to the notion of a prescribed safer supply and, frankly, a non-prescribed safer supply. For some young people, they're not going to go to a pharmacist. They don't have access to the doctor. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Greg Sword. Greg is a Port Coquitlam dad. He tragically lost his daughter, Kamala, to a drug overdose. Greg, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it a lot. And I, I think you're a very brave and courageous guy in speaking out. First, first, Greg, let's briefly tell me the story about, about your daughter here. How long has she been using, uh, using drugs? When did that start? During the pandemic is when she really started to dabble into uh, harder and harder stuff. It started off with weed. Then she started to go to uh, bars, which is the street Xanax. And then she got her hands on some fentanyl, some cocaine. So she just started to dabble with everything, just trying to fit in to certain crowds. Yeah, boy, I'm really sorry about this. And, and she was very young, right? How old was she? Uh, when she finally succumbed was yeah. 14 14 passed away at 14 last year greg i'm sorry man that you've lost your daughter to this this tragic outcome here i i know you fought hard here to get her help can you tell me a little bit about that because we've talked a lot here on the show about how difficult it is to get people into treatment and services did did you try to get something for your daughter i constantly tried in and out of the hospitals um and the problem we have between the age of 12 and 18, the child makes the choice if they need the help or not. No child I know, teenage girl or boy, will ever reach out to an adult and go, I need help. So when they're in the hospital, after an overdose, that's an outcry for help. That's what I was always taught. But in today's society, they have to verbally ask for the help. And if they don't, there's nothing they can do, and parents can't force their kids into rehab. We can't force them into psychiatrists. We can't force them into counseling. So we're just on a sideline 
letting the kids have free reign to do whatever they want. And hearing this, no prescription, uh, safe supply for children under 19, stickens me. It's not going to cure anything. It's just going to amplify the situation and the problem we're already having. Like, I don't understand why the biggest solution for a drug epidemic is let's get more drugs out there. Let's get more people on drugs. Because once kids know that they're, it's acceptable for them to take drugs at this safe site, more and more will be going there. More and more will be making them out and going back to their communities and selling them to their friends. It's just going to be an endless cycle of this situation. I've already seen it happen with my daughter and her friends. And I can just imagine how much worse it can get. Speaking to Greg Sword, Greg is a Port Coquitlam dad. He tragically lost his 14-year-old daughter to a drug overdose last year. Let me play, okay, on the safe supply issue, Greg. Wow, I'm really, uh, really interested in your, on your thoughts on this. You're so passionate on it. Let me play a clip here for you to get your thoughts. So here is the chief coroner of the province, Lisa LaPointe, speaking <laughs> just a, f- a few days ago here. And, and she makes the case here for for safe supply of these drugs, Greg. Let's take a listen and I'll get your thoughts here. We know that safer supply is controversial. Um, As I said in my remarks, for some people it feels contradictory. Why would we provide drugs to people who are already experiencing harms from drugs? Um, What our expert panels have told us is that many of the harms that people are experiencing are because the drugs are toxic. Okay, so the drugs are are toxic. Yeah, and you're laughing at that, Greg. Tell Tell me your thoughts here. I think that's a, just a joke uh, because find that opiate addiction with an opiate is, well, opiates are all addictive drugs. Uh, athletes get addicted to painkillers, which are opiates. And her concept, uh, it sounds great in theory, yeah. but most addicts and kids who are using hide the fact. Uh, they will take the free drugs and just go sell it to get the drugs that they want. They don't want a weaker version of what the government's giving them. They want what they're used to, so they'll use the government's drugs to get what they want. So implying that, yeah, we're saving lives by giving non-toxic drugs out, well, technically, yeah, but no, you're making more addicts out of this because it's going out into the communities, and the ones that they're trying to help, they're just going to go down the back alley and either get their uh, heroin or the fentanyl or whatever they want to use at the time. Yeah. Um, what we should be investing in, not free drugs, is helping these people out because most of them, it's a mental illness. My daughter was suffering anxiety and she didn't know how to cope with it. And yeah. she went down the drug path without realizing the consequences and uh, the proper treatment. She wouldn't open up to doctors about it. So giving these kids more access and easy access to drugs is just going to cause more and more problems. Instead of actually trying to fight the problem, get the people the help that they need, get them into uh, specialists who can help with mental illness, get these kids believing that they're worth living, not just being a zombie in today's society. Um, when I talk to my daughter's friends who are still struggling, they, they look at the hopeless picture because their parents are working, they're struggling to make ends meet. They're looking at rent because they're getting 17, 18, like, okay, we can't afford to move out. We can't afford a car. We can't afford to live on our own. So most of the kids are starting to get depressed now. Yeah. And there's no hope right now when you just look at the market for a single bedroom in Vancouver. What 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid is going to be able to 
afford that. Let me let me so, ask you, hey Greg, hey Greg, let me let me ask you about these safe supply drugs. It, typically, Dilaudid is uh, the drug that is provided by prescription here in British Columbia. Uh, hydromorphone is the other name. Hydromorphone is the other name for it. And what you're describing there, if people, if drug users get a prescription for Dilaudid, that you're describing what's it been ends called. Up with kids. Yeah, it's been, it's been called, it's di- called a diversion. Dilly. A dilly, yeah. This yeah. is the street name they for it, a dilly. dilly. Was, was your daughter using using those drugs? Yes, she was. Mm-hmm. Her, the last night when I talked to her friend, she got a pill uh, that was a dilly, and she went back into her bedroom without laying when by herself took it, and she never woke up. Now the coroner is telling me that it was a cocaine overdose. For over a year... They told me it was hydromorphine with a mixture of cocaine and MDMA in her system. Now the coroners have changed it to a cocaine overdose. So uh, it just baffles my mind how they let me believe for over a year it was a drug I've never heard of. I never knew anything about hydromorphine until I talked to one of my coworkers whose mom was in a hospice, and that's what they were prescribing her. So it's like, well, how, how did my daughter get this where did this come from then starting talking to um her friends they're like yeah we just go down to east vancouver walk down the street and they'll either uh come up be approached to see if they want any or they just have to go ask someone and they'll have uh dillies in five minutes hey greg last question for you do you therefore you've already touched briefly on this you therefore believe like a wiser approach would be to what to rapidly vastly expand the treatment drug treatment detox options instead yes yeah that would be a much better and safer thing because when when you talk to most addicts they don't want to be on it it's a dependent and if we can get them off that and back into regular life and where they feel like they're accomplishing stuff that they have goals and they're media they they won't need the drugs the same because it's a coping mechanism. A bad day. What am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to reach for this. And if we're enabling people to have all these crutches in life, like, oh, I don't feel good. Okay, I'm just going to go down and get my safe supply drug for the day. I don't know how they think that this is going to cure the situation. Greg, I congratulate you for speaking out. You have my sympathy. I'm very sorry that you lost your daughter. I know you tried your best to help her, but I think you're a very courageous guy speaking out. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. All right, here we go now with the rising cost of living in Metro Vancouver. Everything is going up, up, up. Food, housing, child care, transportation, they're all up across the board in Metro. Lots of people having trouble making ends meet. How much income do you need to pay your bills? That's what they call the living wage. The new living wage report is just out. We'll talk about that in just a moment here. But first, have a listen to this here now. We've talked a lot about the cost of living, the stresses and strains that people are facing out there, especially young people right now. Young people really, really struggling to a big degree. Everybody's hurting, but young people, think about a young person trying to get into a first home. Some of them taking to social media to tell their stories. Have a listen to some of these voices here. 
I have $70 worth of groceries on my table right now and I genuinely don't even know what I purchased that made it to $70. I just got a good job. I start in September, but even with that job, I can't buy anything. I can't afford the rent these days. The wages are staying the same. I can't afford to move out. I'm 24 and I'm embarrassed that I can't move out. So what am I supposed to do? Where, where am I supposed to go? I'm working like three jobs right now because the cost of living, and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything really. $350,000 got you a really nice place, at least where I'm from. Now it's like you need $700,000 plus to even get a half decent home. I feel so utterly stuck. You go to school, you get a degree, and you're still not guaranteed a job. 60k a year that used to be like a decent amount of money not anymore i was telling my parents like it's just so frustrating that like you do all the right things you go to university and then you come out you get a job whatever and you can barely afford rent okay a lot of people feeling the pinch a lot of frustration out there as well let's talk about the brand new living wage report for metro vancouver my guest is iglika ivanova senior economist canadian center for policy alternatives iglika thank you for coming on today Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it a lot. So first of all, the living wage, what is that? Can you define that for the listeners here? What is a living wage? Yeah, so what we ask ourselves is what is the hourly rate that people need to earn in order to support the family in Metro Vancouver based on the actual cost of living here? Yeah. So um, it is based on two full-time earners, um, and so we need two full-time earners to be earning twenty-five sixty-eight an hour in Metro Vancouver to be able to support the family here. It, uh, the the living wage takes into account, you know, the actual cost, right? So we start by this basic basket of goods and services that reflects a modest standard of living for for families, you know, food, clothing, housing phone and internet, transportation, things like that. Then we add the various benefits that the government has provided to make life more affordable for people. Um, And then we deduct the taxes that people would have to pay and the employment insurance premiums, things like that. So that after tax, they are actually able to meet their income. Right. Okay. Okay, a good good explainer there. So $25.68, that is the new living wage in Metro Vancouver in this report. And as you pointed out, that is measuring like a family income. So you, if you have two wage earners in a family, they would have to be making at least $25.68 each. Is that right? Yeah. Each, okay. $25.68. And how does that compare? That is up, right? Like if you compare it to last year, what? how much was it last year? That's right. So last year it was twenty four oh eight. So it's okay. up a uh, dollar sixty from last year, or six point six percent. I mean, I don't think any of your listeners would be surprised that the cost of living is going up. And as we just heard, you know, there's it's just becoming in, impossible for many people to make it, even if they do play by the rules and get a job and get a degree, and you know, are doing all the right things. Yet the the economy just isn't working for them. Yeah, 6.6% increase over last year. I guess that's sort of roughly equivalent to the overall inflation rate. Is that about, Is that would you say that's accurate? It's a bit higher than the overall inflation rate. The overall inflation right. rate has come down from its highs last year. 
And it's now around 4%, you know, 3.8 in Canada. So um, it's a bit higher, but that's because the cost of rent and uh, food is going up by higher than the general inflation. You know, those costs in particular, and you heard that, you know, what can you buy in the grocery store? How can you move out of, of your parents' house if you're lucky enough that your parents live or have a place for you to live, which not everyone, you know, yeah. can, can do. Speaking to Iglika Ivanova, we're talking about the new living wage report out in Metro Vancouver. So it's a 6.6% increase to pay for like uh, basically like these in- these inputs that you measured housing food childcare transportation i mean these are like the n- basic necessities of life is what you're looking at right yeah that's right we are looking at a budget that will get people to a point where they're not experiencing extreme financial stress you know when they're yeah. not staying up at night worried about how they're going to pay the rent this month you know right. so but, but it's still a modest um basket because it doesn't account for things like owning a home you know but that's out of the question of these wages in metro Vancouver. it doesn't account for any debt payments so if you have student loans or car loans that's not factored in Um, it doesn't if you have a disabled family member or ill family member that you need to take care of that would be extra cost so this is a fairly modest um, standard of living that we are describing here right Okay, 6.6% increase here to meet these basic costs. How does that compare to the incomes that you're seeing out there? Like, are people's incomes going up that much? No, and that's the problem. People's incomes are not going up that much. I mean, on average, things look better. The average wage in BC, you know, is much higher. It's currently over $35 an hour. Uh, however, a big proportion of, of workers are not getting that, obviously. We have huge inequalities here. And we know who are the people who are earning less than the living wage. We know that they are younger workers. We know that they tend to be more likely women. They are people of color. They are new immigrants. You know, And, and those are the, the people who are particularly struggling with the affordability crisis right now. And we see it. We see it in, uh, you know, alarming rates of uh, food bank use increase. You know, we just a couple of weeks ago talked about how food banks are having trouble meeting demand because there's more and more people who need to to get help with the basic food, you know. And, and we have increasing number of workers, people who are working, who are needing to go to the food bank. Okay, so... We, we look at the situation, we look at the picture here, and what is the answer? Like, what are you guys calling for? Like, if we take a look at the minimum wage in British Columbia, which is quite high relative to the rest of the country, $16.75 an hour, the second highest minimum wage in Canada. Are you saying that that is still too too low? It is too low. I mean, it's uh, the living wage for Metro Vancouver now is nearly $9 higher than the minimum wage. And while it's true that our minimum wage is one of the highest in Canada, so are our costs. You know, we're famous for or notorious for having some of the most or the most affordable housing costs in the country. And I think you heard it in, um, you hear it when you speak to people, you heard your um, your clip that you played in the beginning clearly reflected that. Yeah. So we need, like, we need to be, thinking more critically about 
um, what can a person earning the minimum wage actually afford and, um, and, and looking at increasing those wages. But we also, but, but the labor market alone isn't going to solve the problem. The problem is too big, you know, for the labor market to solve. We're seeing, well, you know, kind of unsustainable increases. So what we need, I think, is also for government to step in more ambitiously, you know, and more boldly and do more to um, tackle the affordability crisis. Okay, well, speaking of um, unsustainable increases, like it was just going through my mind as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking of an employer now who's trying to run maybe a small business. And, and so you're saying that you need an average person, a person needs $25.68 an hour to meet these basic costs in Metro Vancouver. Minimum wage right now, sixteen seventy-five. So you're talking, I mean... <laughs> That would be what, like a sixty percent increase in the minimum wage. I'm just doing the math in my head here. I mean, that's just like yeah, what would, yeah. No, yeah. we're not talking about uh, raising the minimum wage to the living wage at this stage. What we're talking about is closing the gap from from yeah. both sides, right? With some minimum wage increases and some investments in the kind of public um, infrastructure and, and programs that would lower the cost of living for everyone because that small business that you're talking about um yeah. you know knows that one of the reasons they're finding it hard to recruit and retain their workers is their workers can't afford to live in this community right people are moving out of metro vancouver and trying to get to other more affordable places in the province so i think employers are seeing very clearly that housing costs are a barrier for them you know oh, to be okay. able to staff Okay, so if we do, okay, so let's say we do a, an increase in the minimum wage and simultaneously, as you suggest there, increase social spending by, by government to help people, where do you get the money to pay for this expanded social safety net or social problems? Like, I, I'm guessing you're going to say like tax, tax rich people, right? I mean, tax rich people is one of the, uh, obviously, yeah. one of the solutions, and we see that I mean, it's not a lack of money um, that we're dealing with overall, right? We are seeing, so just the numbers came out today on uh, GDP growth from last year, BC clocked in at 3.8% real GDP growth. It's not like our economy has stalled. It's not like nobody's making money. There have been businesses that are making record profits, for example. Margins are increasing in a lot of sectors. Even though some are struggling, some are doing really well. You know, housing affordability, some people can't find a home. Others are seeing tremendous increases in the value of their property. Sure. So there, there, is a, there is no shortage of money in our, uh, in our economy. Hang on a around. second now. Hang on a second now. So are you saying that you should tax people the equity in people's homes? I am saying that we should consider property tax increases as part of a program, especially for luxury homes or homes that are very um, expensive or high value. We're talking about, you know, the top 10%, the top 1% um, in order to address some of those extreme inequalities that we're seeing. And as I said, like on average, things are not looking bad. On average, the average wage in BC it's thirty-five dollars and fifty-eight cents. That's not, yeah. you know, that's well above. It's clear that many businesses are paying wages above the right. living wage. We we have four hundred employers in BC who are certified living wage employers, paying all their direct workers and their contractors 
a wage, a living wage in their community. So, so some people are paying that, and some people can afford to, and they should. And that's what okay. we're calling for with the living wage. The people, businesses that can afford to, should become living wage employees. Okay, this is always a really interesting report. Iglika, thank you for coming on to talk about this today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Mike. All right, let's talk about the campaign by landlords in British Columbia to rewrite some of the tenancy laws in British Columbia. Some landlords, not all of them, but some landlords say that the playing field has been tilted too far in favor of the tenant. So we have had some laws changed in British Columbia. We've had the rent maximum rent increases capped in B.C., for several years now, some landlords saying that the maximum rents allowed are not keeping pace with their input costs. They also complain that it is too difficult to evict a bad tenant. On the other side, some tenants' rights organizations saying, no, actually, we need tougher laws in the other direction. We need stronger laws to protect tenants from unfair evictions. I got Rob Patterson standing by to discuss this now. Now have a listen to this here first. And this is Shashi Maharaj. She is a landlord. She supports a petition online to rewrite the tenancy laws. And she said she had a hell of a time evicting a bad tenant from her condo that she owned. Have a listen to her story here. My original tenant subleased the property uh, to this other tenant and turned out that he had a 20-year criminal record. And the first tenant didn't have any idea about this, but he used a false identity. And um, yeah, so anyways, by the time I started getting the rent payments late and so forth, he was already fully in there, living in there. I had been getting complaints from the strata um, neighbor complaints and this is a brand new family complex okay that was shashi maharaj on monday's show and she as you heard her say there her original tenant subleased the apartment to somebody else who had a criminal record she said Uh, she said she eventually got the guy out of there but she said once she did there was a ton of damage in the place she said it ended up costing her $30,000. All right, let's discuss with my guest, Rob Patterson. Rob is a a rental rights lawyer, tenant resource and advisory center, and I'm always grateful for his time. Hey, Rob, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Rob, what do you think of that story? I mean, she says she got blindsided by a tenant who sublet the place to some other tenant who was an undesirable person with a criminal record who trashed the place. I mean, you think she's got a point? Absolutely. I mean, there are there are horror stories out there in the in in housing on all different sides. I think a couple things are important to keep in mind. I mean, for landlords who are worried about this kind of situation, I think it's an important sort of uh, sign that it's important to be if you're going to be a landlord to have an active interest in the property, right? Like a tenant can only legally sublet a ten a rental unit with the landlord's written consent. So, right. you know, the risk of sort of 
uh, I think a lot approach of a lot of landlords is sort of taking a really investor focused mindset approach of buying a unit, you know, putting a tenant in there and then just sort of not checking in regularly, not really waiting, just waiting for the rent to roll in and not taking many other steps. Um, that that can lead has an element of risk to it, especially um, you know when it's something like this is maybe like a worst a worst case scenario. Um, the thing I I note though, like in terms of the the um, you know, we can compare sort of negative outcomes from landlords and tenants with bad tenancy situations. So in this yeah. case, obviously, it's unfortunate landlord has uh, has going to be suffer suffering a financial loss because uh, because of something, something that's happened here. Um, but if you look at sort of you know a, a bad story for a landlord revolves around damage to the property, revolves around losing money. A bad story for a tenant revolves around the loss of a home. That usually means displacement from their community. It means the often loss of the job. It can be loss of their health. The the negative outcomes of eviction are so much more drastic than the negative outcomes of a, a bad tenancy for a landlord. Uh, that's something that really needs to be kept in mind when we think about how we balance our write our laws to balance the interests here. Because at the end of the day, we need to balance the interests of an investor to make money against the interests of tenants to have a stable home. Um, and you know, some some uh, bad cases of tenants, you know, and landlord suffering loss doesn't mean that we need to tilt the balance so far the other way that tenants simply don't feel safe in their home at all. I think I would say if you ask any tenant across the province now, if they feel safe in their home, a, a, a alarming percentage are going to say no, because we don't have those those adequate protections. Um, and we certainly don't need to be going that way. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting, it's a really good point, especially when you consider that, l let's say you're in a place that you like and that you can afford as a, as a renter, and you get that sudden eviction and suddenly you're out on the street, you got to find a new place to rent. Well, man, you can almost guarantee that the next place you try to find the, the rent's going to be through the roof. Like rents have gone up so much. So that can place someone in a very, very dire predicament, right? If they, if they, if they're suddenly out of a, the place that they like and they got to get a new place, man, the rents are so unaffordable right now, right? Absolutely. Rents keep spiking year over year. And I think this is a really important conversation we have to have. We talk about rent increases because, yes, rent in B.C. during a tenancy, we have the Residential Tenancy Act for, for decades has had a cap on how much rent can increase every year during a tenancy. But right. between tenancies, there's no control. And so when we look out at the market and you see reports that show, you know, one bedrooms in Vancouver as of last month, 10 percent increase year over year. Well, the rent increase for 2023 was far less than 10%. I think it was 2.5%. So what has happened there? Well, we've got landlord, we got illegal rent increases. We've got uh, you know landlords coming in and threatening tenants with eviction if they don't agree to higher rent increases. That's a story we hear about constantly. And tenants don't have enough confidence in our system and our laws to be able to say, no, I'm not going to pay that without feeling like, oh, the landlord might still be able to get me out because we don't have those protections. Well and I mean, I think tenants have a right to be afraid. If you look at the, the numbers, it, I mean, when we talk about in general, making it easier to evict tenants in BC, the national average for eviction is 5.9%. Um, what that means is in the last 10 years, 5.9% of tenants have been forced to move. Um, okay. In BC, that number is, sorry, in the last, in the last five years, 5.9% been forced to move. In BC, that number is 10.9%. Oh. It's almost double the national average. So... Oh. If we're looking just at ourselves compared to the rest of Canada, we are already in an eviction crisis. It's already in an epidemic. We are twice the national average. We don't be need, need to be making it easier to evict tenants. Hmm. Okay, that's very, very interesting. Let me ask you about, uh, about this. Uh, 
when we when you take a look, Rob, at, at the rules for that allow a landlord to evict a tenant. Now there are four cause rules, and I think these are all quite reasonable: unpaid rent, chronically late rent, uh, damage to a unit, illegally subletting the unit out, like hap- like happened in the case we talked about there. Uh, too many people living in the unit, illegal activity in the unit. You know, you can you can evict someone for these reasons. Then you've got now. Here's the other one: the no fault eviction. So let me ask you about this because there are reasons that a tenant can be evicted for reasons other than for cause, right? Now that can, can include landlord use of the property, right, or renovations or repairs to the property. Um, so, do you are you saying that? Why is that eviction rate so much higher in British Columbia? Are you saying that some landlords are are finding excuses to evict these tenants so they can jack their rent up? So, I mean, anecdotally, I can tell you that's what we heard from so many tenants. You know, the number of times I've heard the specific story with a slight variation of my landlord has told me they want me to pay more rent. I said, no, I got a month. Then they told me that their child's moving in or their parents moving in or some other relatives moving in and I have to leave. And that's that's um, and legal. You can if, if your child is going to move into the place, you can legally evict a, the tenant. Is that right? Yes, but a landlord must have a good faith intention for that to happen. And mm-hmm. if they have an ulterior motive, that legally undermines that good faith. So when a tenant, when a tenant, you know, a landlord comes to a tenant and says, I want you to pay more rent because I think you're under market. The tenant, tenant says, no, the landlord says, oh, oh, well, then my, my son's going to move in. At that point, a tenant can dispute that notice and say, well, the landlord, I think the landlord actually is acting in bad faith. They say the son is going to move in, but in fact, they would just want to raise the rent and they can make that argument before the branch. But if you look at those numbers about eviction, you'll find that in BC, our double the national rate eviction uh, rate is being driven by no fault eviction. Of all those evictions, 85% in the last five years have been for no fault. So we are, it's absolutely supercharged from no fault evictions. From what I can tell you, from what I've seen, it's the number one issue people call us about on our info line. We get Every year we get 20%, 20 to 25% more calls than we've had the previous year. We're up to somewhere around 14,000 calls this year. And the, wow. the single biggest issue is this, that landlords are going to tenants, threatening with rent eviction, rent increases, and then uh, issuing these kind of bad faith eviction notices. Um, it, I mean, I, this is really a follow-on to the rent eviction crisis in 20, the sort of peaked around 2018, 2019, when landlords are doing this to entire buildings, saying they wanted to, you know, renovate the renovate the units, but really they would slap a coat of paint on, do a couple cosmetic repairs, right. um, and then have a whole new vacant building ready to rent at whatever whatever they okay. could get for it. Um, okay. Yeah. Hey Rob, let me let me ask you this. Where do you stand on the issue of what's known as vacancy control? So as you described there right now, there's a maximum rent increase every year. This year it's 2%. That's for an existing tenant. If you have a brand new tenant, you can charge whatever you want. So you can understand why a landlord, given the high rents that are being out there right now, would economically it would be in their interest to get a new tenant so you could charge a lot more rent. Right. So there is a movement called vacancy control that would control the maximum rent increase. Even if you have a new tenant, they would put controls on that. Do you support that? Absolutely. I think right now, if nothing else, it is an essential stopgap measure to take the profit out of kicking people out of their homes. The fact that people can make so much money from throwing people effectively onto the street because we have no vacancy, almost no vacancies, and the rents are so high, anyone going back into the market now is doomed to not be able to find anything unless they're incredibly lucky or willing to move very far out of their communities. Um, We need this, if nothing else, as a stopgap measure. 
And I think well, long term, it is it is it is it is solid policy. Um, a great report mm. by the BC uh, Government Employees Union uh, out last month shows that vacancy control does not actually lead to a, a lower investment in rental properties. Uh, it's still very profitable to run rental properties. I think one of the things we we forget when we talk about whether a landlord is you know profiting off of their investment with in terms of rental housing is that rents really aren't the ways landlord profits. The primary profit vehicle in a rental property is the land value. And in that sense, landlords, it's never been a better time to be a landlord. Um, your rents are, rents are going up, rising faster than inflation. If you look at it year over year, units, all unit rents are rising faster than inflation. And land values, if a landlord's held on to a property only five years, you're looking at massive capital gains. Um, so yeah. this isn't – even, and even if you, we, we pare it back down, look at an individual landlord. The, av the average person in BC who owns their own home and one other property, so that includes every single landlord that owns like their own house and a condo, makes on average four times the income of a ten average tenant in BC. That's four times the income before you even take into account the difference in wealth. So this isn't really about talking about balancing between uh, you know equal parties. This isn't a situation where everyone's sort of struggling in the same way. You know yeah. the you know I just the, the piece on before this uh, I, the clip about that uh, we're seeing a six point six percent increase in the living wage. Yes. If you're a tenant, then your living living wage has gone up six point six percent. You need a six point six percent wage increase to cover that, and next year you're going to need a three point five percent rent increase, uh, a wage increase to cover your rent <laughs> increase for next year. Um, like that's that's just not a. We're, we're asking constantly for those with less to subsidize the profits of okay. those with more, uh, and that's why okay. we need vacancy control. Rob, it's always great to have you on here. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Okay, I hope I didn't uh, rant too much at you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.